We'll take your copy of God's Word, turn over to the New Testament. We are jumping back into our study of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, you will find, is uh, part of the pastoral epistles, which are past 1 and 2 Thessalonians. You have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. So 2 Timothy is sandwiched between 1 Timothy and Titus. And so as we begin this morning, just as a way of reminder, let me get my papers in order here. As a way of reminder, if you were writing your last letter, what would you say? If you knew that death was imminent, and in Paul's case, as he writes to young Timothy, as he writes to his protege, as he writes to his co-laborer in the gospel, he is writing these words as his final words before his death as a martyr for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would you say? You know, I read that recently in his... I thought about some of the young people who've been hanging out at my house. You know, what would they say? What would they say to younger people coming behind them? And really and truly, as each and every one of you this morning, I want you to reflect, what would you say to those coming behind you? If you knew you only had this one letter to write. And so this is where we find ourselves, and we enter chapter 2. And in verses 1 through 7, we see that Paul is giving Timothy instructions for effective ministry. Can I remind you this morning that we are all called to ministry? It is not just those that are paid to do ministry. But we are, each and every one of us, are called to do ministry. For why? Because God saved you to be a conduit through whom his glorious, life-changing gospel would flow to others. He's given us, as scripture tells us, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's giving us the ministry of making much of Jesus. And as you will hear today, he has given us where when our lives are changed, we want other people's lives to be changed as well. So if you will look with me in 2 Timothy verses 1 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 You then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also Let's pray Father God thank you for the reading of your word and may you open our hearts and minds to see how we are to apply this to our lives today. Lord, what this means for each and every one of us today. And Father, I pray that as we study your word, Lord, that you may do what only you can do. That you would plant seeds, that you would water seeds that have been planted. And Lord, that you would bring growth. Not numerical growth, but spiritual growth, character growth. In our lives. And Father, we ask all these things in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 
So as we begin this morning, as we enter into chapter 2, and please let me remind you that as you read scripture, as you read the pastoral letters, you're reading a letter. You know, when when Paul wrote this, it didn't say chapter 2. It's a continuation. It's a letter to Timothy. And so he says, you then, my child, other translations say, you then, my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, as he's talking about, he's saying, you then, my son, you then, my child. You remember what he said towards the end of chapter one. He's talking about those who had abandoned him. But then we see just before that, so yes, in life and in ministry and in your, in your journey with following Christ, there will be those who leave you. There will be those who abandon you, who will turn away, who go to chase other interests, or maybe they're called elsewhere. And so the thing I want you to remember is that just before this, he's talked about those who have abandoned him. But it's beautiful that he gives us the ministry of one Sepphoris. And in one Sepphoris, one Sepphoris was an encourager. He was, in essence, another Barnabas. He was the son of encouragement who had sought Paul out, who was not ashamed of his chains, was not ashamed of the gospel, and came to minister to Paul. We're called to seek others out. We are called to be ministers of the gospel. And then we see this word this morning, be strengthened or be strong by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I entitled this morning's message when Miss Terry printed it in the bulletin. It was the fact that, that we're to find strength and teach others. As I was finishing up this weekend, I wrote in there that we are to find strength to reach and teach others. That is what the essence of this passage is. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with being strong. Lord, what does it mean to be strong? My life verse, be strong and immovable. Be strong and immovable. Work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know nothing you do for the Lord is useless. Be strong. But can I remind you this morning that the Lord's definition of strong and the world's definition of strong are polar opposites. The world's definition of strong is to be strong and to be mighty, to, to just say what you think and, and do whatever you've got to do. But to be strong in Christendom, to be strong as you follow Christ, is to live a life of humble submission. As Paul says, may I decrease and you increase, Lord. That should be our prayer as well. As we think about this word, be strengthened, we should think back on Ephesians 6, verse 10, which begins the passage of the whole armor of God. And as Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, he begins in verse 10 and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is not in our own strength. It is not what we think and what we feel, but we are to find strength in the Lord. That's where true strength comes from. Paul tells the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians verses chapter 3, verse 5, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. If you're going to be strengthened, if you want to find strength, seek Jesus. That is where your strength will come from.
And then we see, so he says, you then, my child, be strengthened, be strong. But be strong how? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I love when I study scripture, and especially when I study it inductively. When I study and I sit down and I look at a verse, or I look at two verses, and I begin to say, God, what are you wanting me to see? And I begin to box in letters and circle things and underline things and draw lines to things. And this morning, I would just remind you that he's saying we're to be strengthened, what? By the grace, but not just any grace. It is the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, most often... The original word here in the Hebrew language, Greek. Sorry, I can't ever keep those straight. In the original language, grace most often refers to God's unmerited favor. But in this context, however, it denotes God's empowerment of believers to live the Christian life. And so I began to sit down, and this is what I encourage you as you personally study God's Word. You need to have a notebook nearby. You need to have something that you can process what God is showing you, to, to write them out so that you can just get it out, that you can, you can put to paper what He is speaking to you, so that you may look back and you may be encouraged. But also as we talk about Paul, that's a way to be a Paul to those coming behind you. Right, you leave that for the generation coming behind you. And so I began to write down and I began to think, what do we know? What what can I think about, about God's grace? And first and foremost, the first thing that I wrote down is that it's amazing. Amen, we sing about that amazing grace. It's free. It's undeserved. It is sufficient. Now, I have to say, the other thing I encourage you, and see, you want to know how to study God's Word. You want to know how to, as we're going to talk about, reach and teach others. It is by doing what we're talking about here today. It is about sitting down in a passage of Scripture and saying, what do we know about God's grace? What comes to mind about God's grace? And I want you to know that I texted two of my pastor's friends, and I said, God's grace is dot, 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 and go. And they gave me some answers. And it's amazing to me that neither one of them said the same thing. Katie was walking through the house and, and I asked her, I said, Katie, tell me something about God's grace. And I expected her to say that it was amazing, right? Because that's the first thing that we think of a lot of times. But she said, no. She said, it's unwavering. She, she, but then as I asked her that question, she began to process and she said, well, well it's unlimited, and then she began to dig a little bit deeper and she was like, she was wrestling with some words and in essence what we came up with is, is non-discriminatory. It doesn't discriminate. God's grace doesn't discriminate. Aren't you thankful for that? That it does not discriminate. It is free. It is for all. It is undeserved. And it is amazing. It is for everyone. Katie, I'm proud of you. Thank you for what you gave me. And see, that's what happens when we ask questions of those around us, of our friends, of our family. 
and we process God's word together. It is not just something that we come into the Lord's house and in our instance, 227 Broad Street on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and we come in and we get our fill for church and we walk out and we live however we want to live. No, friends, that is what is wrong with the church today is there is a separation that we step into this box called church and we praise God, oh, I love Jesus and we walk out and we walk into a, a world filled with sin and ill repute and we do it our way. This is not Burger King. It is not have it your way. It is the Lord's way. Psalm 46, verse 10. I delight to do thy will, my Lord. It is his will that we are to delight to do. And if you have not asked yourself recently, what is the Lord's will for your life? Grace is for everyone. It's endless. It abounds. And friends, it is transforming. As I think about this, and as I was sitting down to read this morning, I picked up a book recently by a gentleman by the name of Paul David Tripp. You've probably heard me speak of him before. He's very deep. I consider him to be the Oswald Chambers of our day. Because sometimes I sit down and read his writing, and I'm like, whoa, what did I just read? And I have to pray sometimes and say, God, give me a nugget of wisdom. Give me something that you need me to focus on on what he's saying, because it's so deep. And he recently released this book, and it's called Lead, 12 Gospel Principles for Leadership in the Church. And this morning in my quiet time, as my message was finished and I prepared to begin my journey to church, I was reading in this book, and I think it's no coincidence that I read this statement that I want to share with you. The church is a community of unfinished people living in a broken world and still in need of God's forgiving and transforming grace. You see what I'm talking about? It's a challenge. It is a nugget that God has used Paul David Tripp to pen to remind us that we are a community of unfinished people. That we are living in a broken world still in need of God's forgiving and transforming grace. And can I remind you this morning that when you walk out of a service like this into the world and you hear preaching and teaching like this, it's not because of me, but because of what God has spoken through me. You can't help but go out and live differently with that reminder that, you know, you might think that you got it all together. You might think that your highlight reel that you share on social media, you might think that the picture that you paint, that you, that you work endlessly and tirelessly to keep up the show and you're crumbling inside. Our strength is found in weakness. Our strength is found in seeking the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As we talk about grace this morning, I can't help but remember one of the first verses that I learned as an adult as I began to take next steps towards Jesus. Where sin did abound, grace did much more. Abound. Are you thankful this morning that God's grace did much more abound, greater than your sin? You see, friends, when God changes our lives and our hearts, we want others to experience that too. We want others to experience his love, his, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. That is what he has called us to do. 
So you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is of Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust or commit to faithful, reliable men who will be able to teach others also. You see, Paul entrusted the gospel to Timothy, and now Timothy was in, was to entrust it to others. Can I, can I just pause here for a second and tell you that verse 2 is, is my heartbeat in the church today? Are we raising up men and women who can share the gospel, who can, who can teach? And I want you to think about it, and as we look at this word in here, and you have to go back, and you, and you have to wrestle with this, and it says, entrust to faithful men. Well, is that all-inclusive? Is And I'm not going to... Well, I will. So, one of my uh, study Bibles that I was reading, I meant to print this out in my notes, but I didn't. So hang on just a second and let me go here. As I was reading this particular verse, actually it wasn't my study Bible, it was my ESV app. But as we read this, as it talks about faithful men, it says the Greek word here can refer to both men and women depending on the context. So can I remind you this morning that, and, and we're going to preach and teach it as it says, because this is really talking about men, but I want to make a side note, that women are called to teach. Amen. There are some wonderful women, Lisa Turkhurst, Priscilla Shire, Christine Kane. These are women who have been sold out to God, who are going out and, and are raising up a generation of other women. You think about yourself, a lot of us, who was the first person that really impacted you in your faith? It was your Sunday school teacher, which was most likely who? It was most likely a woman. Now, as you grow and as you grow into adulthood, my, my, Chris's, uh, interpretation, opinion is the fact that I feel like that women should minister to women. Right? Because there's certain things that they are going through in their life and they can speak truth into each other, but that women shouldn't necessarily be elders. Can women be deacons? Be honest with you, they're already doing a better job than most deacons. Because a deaconess is a servant. They're to serve. So they're doing the job without the title. Now I don't want to be like I wanna you be like Chris is a heretic. Let's burn them at the stake. No, but here's the reason I mention this about women and men, and I bring this to your attention, is because you know what, friends? You need to wrestle with that yourself. You need to go and take time and study that for yourself. Because honestly, there are things like that that divide us. And that's why you have so many denominations and you have so many churches. But do we stand on the pillars of who God is, of Christ born of a virgin? He lived a sinless life. He died for our sins. And he was the he was the the spotless Lamb of God who took all the sins of the world away, and that through faith, by confessing with our mouths that we believe and are accepted, those are the things that we stand on. Other things don't let them divide you. Amen. And I could read some other verses, but I won't. You can study it for yourself. So you're to commit. You're to entrust to faithful men. And so this is my heartbeat because when people step out, if, if I take a Sunday off like recently or, or somebody else takes a Sunday off and you typically get somebody to come and you fill the pulpit, well, why isn't there someone within? Why is there not someone who we've raised up within who can take that and, and share the message, share what God has done in their life, share their testimony. We don't always have to look to the outside, but we should be growing. Paul says that you should 
what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful, reliable men. And as we think about that, we have certain things in place. I think Bible fellowship, we've discussed this. If a new man came in, if a new family came in and man was interested in serving, well, we need to get to know you before you go into an area of service. You don't just show up one Sunday and, you know, say, well, now I'm ready to teach Sunday school. No, Jack. Like, who are you? What's your story? What's your background? What do you believe? You know, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to be reliable? Are you going to be committed? Are you just seeking a position? Are you seeking a title? That they may be able to teach others also. I found it amazing. Sometimes as I read, my mind is just like blown. Because it's like, why didn't I see that? And I want to show you this morning really quick something that I saw as I studied. Here in verse 2, we see four generations. We see four generations of believers. Paul is saying, from me. That's the first generation. What you have heard, he's speaking to Timothy. That's the second generation. Timothy is to entrust to faithful men. That's the third generation. That's Timothy's disciples. And then we see others. That's the fourth generation. Timothy's disciples, disciples. Friends, if you want to know how to reach people for Jesus and have a fire, a church is on fire for God, it will be done through multiplication. It will be done through multiplication. It is you investing your life in someone else and them in turn turning around and investing their life in someone else as well. As we see it here, Paul invested in Timothy. Timothy is investing into other men. Those men will invest in other men. Other women. Women will invest in other women. So, listen, a changed life is a life worth sharing. Is a life worth sharing. And so as we come to this particular passage and we think this morning a little bit about discipleship and what it means, we throw that word around a lot in the church. In essence, it is a student. Timothy tells us too that, I mean, Paul tells Timothy that we're to be students of the word. We're to study to show ourselves approved. But I can't help but think about Jesus and how Jesus did ministry. You see, Jesus ministered while the disciples watched. So Jesus showed them what ministry looked like. Jesus then allowed the disciples to assist them. He invited them. He involved them. So he showed them. He involves them. Now listen. Then the disciples ministered and Jesus assisted them. He's guiding them. And then the ultimate goal. Jesus observed And the disciples ministered to others. Jesus watched. If we're to make disciples, we have to show people the way. We have to involve people as we do ministry. We have to turn them loose. But really, kind of before we turn them loose, we walk alongside of them. And sometimes we have to bite our tongue. We have to let them make mistakes. We have to let them spread their wings. And we have to maybe come back later And like my old boss man, Robbie Evans, which I'm thankful that he was reached before he died of of cancer by Wally Jones. Robbie was a 
I want a choice word. I had to check my words because I'm in church. But Robbie was a hard man. He's just very rough, kind of rigid, kind of blunt. And so I think about him. And I can't remember what I was going to say. Bless. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Robbie's philosophy, as I sat under him at, at, the, at the item, was this. Go make a decision. If you make the wrong decision, which I thought maybe you shouldn't have made, we'll talk about it. Right? But you've got to empower people to make decisions. And that is why the church, that is why culture, that is why corporate America sometimes becomes stale and does nothing. It's because we're waiting on someone to make a decision. Make a decision. Sometimes it might make all the difference in the world. So listen, I, I want to share with you this. A teacher shared, and, and, and listen, I've shared about this before, but if there has been one book outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, outside of the, the Holy Bible, that has radically transformed Chris Moore, it has been this book called Growing Up, Making Disciples Who Make Disciples by Robbie Gallaty. This copy that I hold in my hand was given to me by a friend who I've struggled with over the years, amen, our personalities, and I've served on the board with him, and I could tell you more stories, but he was reading this book. He underlined, there's some of his underlines, which kind of irked me, because I'm like, I want to I see things. I, want, I don't want to see your underlines. But he gave me this book. He said, I'll buy another one. Take it. And it radically transformed my view of discipleship and what it means to make disciples. That's where my quote that I love, that I share with you often, it comes from. It's right here in the beginning. And of course, because it's not marked, I can't go right to it. Oh, here it is. It's in the introduction. Before you even get into chapter 1, the gospel came to you because it was headed to someone else. God never intended for your salvation to be an end, but a beginning. God saved you to be a conduit through whom his glorious, life-changing gospel would flow to others. I read that and could have put this book down, but I didn't. I didn't. And so one thing is I was thinking about this and thinking about that we're to find our strength in the Lord that we're to reach and teach others is that we have to be disciples who make disciples. And one of the things Galilee says is this. A teacher shares information while a discipler shares life. A teacher aims for the head while a discipler aims for the heart. A teacher measures knowledge while a discipler measures faith. A teacher is an authority while a discipler is a servant. A teacher says, listen to me, while a discipler says, follow me. And I wrote in the margins as I wrote that and typed that out from that book. There's ever been a verse of scripture outside of my life verse that has transformed me? It is 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is your life worthy of imitation? 
If someone was to imitate you, would they be imitating the world or would they look more like Jesus? That is a sobering, sobering reminder. We all fail in some way every day. Thank God for his grace. It is amazing, it is sufficient, and it strengthens us. Also, this morning, as we think about discipleship, every believer should have two questions they should be able to answer. Who am I discipling and who is discipling me? One time in my ministry as I worked with a small group at the item, see, here's the thing you got to remember, is that when you're obedient following Jesus, he's going to give you opportunities that you could never dream of or think of or imagine. And I got invited for a season to come into the item to lead a Bible study each week, one day a week, during lunchtime. And four or five people faithfully came, and we studied growing up making a disciple who makes disciples. And I'll never forget in that, I defined discipleship, and I worked with my buddy, Mark Parton. And in essence, I want to say it said this. I asked the question to them on a survey before we began. Have you ever been discipled? And the way we define that is that you had someone who was intentionally investing in your walk with Jesus. Intentionally investing in your walk with Jesus. That's what it means to make disciples. Bible Fellowship Church, Bible Fellowship Church has two answers, two questions that it needs to answer as well. Do we have a plan for making disciples? And is it working? I want to invite you this morning, before we take communion, there's something I'm going to read. This communion will look a little bit differently than others. You'll see why in a minute. But I want to close with this. As Paul is writing to Titus, we see in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, we see these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, this morning as we prepare to take communion, I encourage those of you that are on the phone, I encourage you to stay with us through this time. You might not have the sacraments in front of you, but you know what it's like. I want you to visualize that. Because what is communion? Communion is a picture of what Christ has done for us. Guys, y'all can sit down for just a minute. We'll, I'm going to read this from this book. On Wednesday night, we've been going through this book called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. It's not happenstance. And this week, I read this section, and I intentionally withheld it from our meeting together because I wanted to read it this morning. So bear with me as I read this. I think it's a sober reminder of what we're about to partake. You see, for Jesus left us two sacraments. He left us baptism and communion. And under this cloth, you'll see, do this 
in remembrance of me. Now listen, under the heading of breaking of bread, Francis Chan writes this. The first disciples devoted to the breaking of bread, which in the New Testament refers to a shared meal in which they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Think of what this would have been like for them. Jesus had a profound impact on all the people in the early church. His sacrificial death on the cross and subsequent resurrection were real for them. They were misunderstood and opposed by people around them. Some were beaten or even put to death for following Jesus. So imagine what it would have meant to them when they gathered with just a few people who shared their mission and beliefs. Imagine sitting around a table and sharing a meal with people who loved you unconditionally and whose lives had been changed in the way as yours. As you gather, you can't help but remember those who used to sit at the table with you but were killed for proclaiming his death. Some who gather with you have injuries and scars from the persecution. You break the bread and eat it, remembering Jesus has broken his body so that you could find life in him. Imagine drinking the wine with these fellow believers as you recall how his blood was shed. He did this for you so you could be cleansed and forgiven all your sins. Can you see how powerful this experience would have been for the church every time they gathered? If communion has become boring for us now, it could be that we've lost sight of the value of Jesus' sacrifice. When communion feels like an obligation rather than a life-giving necessity, a serious heart scan needs to take place. God wants us to love the Lord's Supper so much that we feel as if we can't live without it. Have you ever felt this way? Or have you allowed the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus to become just another theological concept? God designed communion to be an intimate act of remembering his flesh and blood. More than just an exercise of mind, he wanted us to actually eat the bread and drink of the cup. And communion is not just about intimacy with Jesus. It's also about intimacy with one another. Remember that Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet and commanded them to love one another just as he loved them. It was after this that he taught them to stare at his broken body and blood to remind them of how he loved them. As we consider the cross and look around the room, we should be asking ourselves, Am I willing to love the people in this room to that extent? This probably sounds impossible to most of you, yet it's what Christ asked of us. Just imagine if the church was made up of people who literally would go to the cross for one another. How could people shrug their shoulders as they witnessed that kind of love? This is what unbelievers should see when they watch us break bread with one another. Listen, if communion feels like a curious add-on to your church service, rather than the very core of everything we're about, 
then you're missing the point of church. Amen.